service. Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Hello, and thank you for joining us for American Heritage Program. My name is Chris Mahalik. Today's story is found online at historynet.com. Harlem Hellfighters Searing Tales from the World War I Trenchers by Missy Sullivan and Volker Jansen. Like many veterans of the killing fields of World War I, Horace Pippin had a tough time shaking off the memories. So in a decade after the war, he captured them and tamed them inside sketch-filled journals. He had no dearth of stories to tell. There was the terrified young recruit who hauntingly foresaw his own death, the foul trenches with their unending soundtrack of screaming artillery shells and staccato machine gun fire, the gas clouds that suddenly appeared from the sky, the forests across fields littered with wounded and dead, and the trauma of being hit by a German sniper and then pinned in a foxhole leading out. Pippin poured out his war memories into a few small composition books, filling page after page with his tidy handwriting. The spelling and grammar are often makeshift. The humble drawings are rendered in pencil and crayon, but the stories, even in Pippin's muted matter-of-fact telling, offer a rare first-person account of the harrowing combat experience of the Harlem Hellfighters, the most celebrated U.S. regiment of African-American soldiers during World War I. The Harlem Hellfighters were an African-American infantry unit in World War I who spent more time in combat than any other American unit. Despite their courage, sacrifice, and dedication to their country, they returned home to face racism and segregation from their fellow countrymen. Signing on for Uncle Sam... When the U.S. entered World War I in 1917, Horace Pippin was almost 30 years old, born in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and raised in Goshen, New York. He left school after the seventh grade to help support his family. He took an array of menial jobs, hotel porter, coal wagon driver, feed store helper, lived intermittently in New York City as a laborer, they moved to Patterson, New Jersey in 1912 to work as an iron molder. At this point, there was little evidence he would go on to become one of the most renowned African-American artists of the 20th century. On June 1st, 1917, not long after the U.S. entered the war, Pippin volunteered for the 15th New York National Guard, later christened the 369th Regiment, and nicknamed the Harlem Hellfighters. That November, during training, he earned his corporal stripes. They landed on the Atlantic coast of France the following month. From the time the Hellfighters arrived in France in late December 1917, it was unclear if they would ever see combat at all. In a heyday of Jim Crow discrimination, the U.S. military's all-white leadership questioned but the black soldiers had the intelligence or the courage to fight, so most were relegated to support roles. Roughly 10% of the 380,000 African Americans who served in the war actually fought 
according to U.S. National Archives, eager to fight, hailed as heroes. Assigned to the infantry under General Jack J. Blackjack Pershing, commander of the American Expeditionary Force, the Hellfighters initially toiled as laborers, constructing a railroad yard, building roads, and unloading ships. It was slow work and wet work, and you would go to bed wet, but there would be no fire to drive by, Pippin wrote, of the latter duty. But the black troops were eager to fight from the front-line trenches. It were a place we all wanted to see, he wrote. We did not think it right to go there and not see it. They ultimately did see the trenches and combat in northern France, where they played a crucial role in helping to blunt the German advance across the Western Front. The 369th proved themselves able and fearless fighters, serving 191 days on the front, more time in continuous combat than any other American unit. The Hellfighters never lost ground to the Germans or had a man captured, and they were the first unit of all the Allied armies to reach the River Rhine, a key strategic victory. My men never retire. They go forward or they die, said the commanding officer, Colonel William Hayward, to a French general who urged retreat after one particularly bruising battle. The French government honored the entire regiment with the Croix de Guerre. Many individual members received medals of valor. U.S. recognitions wouldn't come until decades later, if at all. Of his unit, Pippin wrote, I never seen the time yet that they were not ready if they were always ready to go, and they did go to the last man. We were good, good enough to go any place, fighting for the French. But it wasn't alongside American forces that the Hellfighters made their mark. With the French looking to the U.S. to help replenish the badly depleted armies, Pershing handed the 369th over to their allies. Seeing the shoddy equipment given to America's black troops, the French re-kitted the Hellfighters with French rifles, helmets, belts, gas masks, and canteens with wine. They also beefed up the 369th military training in trench construction, machine gun operation, the construction and use of grenades, and the preparations for a gas attack. They proved apt pupils, wrote journalist and educator Emma J. Scott in Scott's official history of the American Negro in the World War, the first major chronicle of African-American contributions to World War I, published in 1919. In grenade throwing, they easily outdid their instructors, and in bayonet work, they demonstrated great skill. After months of training, the 369th first saw action in Bois d'Aus in the Champagne region on March 12, 1918. The Hellfighters went on to fight major battles at Chateau Thierry, Bella Wood, and Minotcourt. Dark fights above, vermin below. Life on the front in what Pippin called them lonely, foody, muddy trenches was miserable, terror-filled slog, where one day blurred into the next. Soldiers had to constantly bail out water with pails, he wrote, to keep their bottom bunks from being inundated. Rats and lice were constant companions. 
and the steady German barrage meant that death could arrive at any moment. We were all in a dugout when the shells were dropping all around the trench, he wrote. As soon as we came out of our dugout, I could smell gas. I looked around me, and I seen that they all had their gas masks on. Every step we took, a shell would land somewhere near the trench. He went on to describe how mortar shells caved in parts of the trench, forcing them to fall to their bellies and crawl like worms through the muck. Clouds of poisonous gas drifted in without warning. They could be so thick, he wrote, that it all looked blue. The Germans put so much gas in one place, and it was so thick that it looked like fog. And hardly a day went by without a dogfight overhead. Once Pippin witnessed a French plane score a direct hit on a German one. All at once we were a, he were afire and came down to rise no more. He ran to the crash site where the cockpit's two occupants looked like mush. Meanwhile, the victorious French pilot circled above like a king over his great foe. Airborne gunners would also strafe the ground with bullets. Anywhere men were out in the open, on roads or in fields, the Germans would come in a plane and would deal out death to them, Pippin wrote. I never gave it a thought until one afternoon. It were a cloudy day. I was not thinking of anything in the line of danger at the time, when all at once I heard a sound like a gush of air. I fell to one side of the trench as he fired at me. I laid so low until he were gone. I said to myself, he near had me this time. Not that there was ever time to recover from such close calls. Afterward, as Pippin sat on a box, smoking a cigarette to calm his nerves, the gas alarm sounded, alerting the platoon to an oncoming cloud of strong mustard gas. Later that night, a runner arrived. Soon after, Pippin and others were sent out into no man's land in the pouring rain to root out a nest of German gunners. The mission failed. Men as machine gun fodder. Pippin vividly described the 369th hellish forays into the battlefield. When the artillery opened up, he wrote, he would have thought that the world was coming to an end. To see those shells bursting in the night, the gas, dust, and smoke was terrible. Sometimes they would be out for days without food, trying to advance as enemy machine gunners targeted them continuously, men laying all over wounded and dead. Some was being carried. We wished we could help the wounded, but we couldn't. We had to leave them there and keep advancing, ducking from shell hole to shell hole all day. He described one afternoon in summer 1918 when virtually all of his platoon had been felled by heavy machine gun crossfire. It only left four unhurt in that pit, he wrote. After one friend got killed right behind him while peeking up to spot the enemy position, Pippin creeped away. The bullets were hitting in front of me and would throw dirt in my face. I knew that if I stayed there, I would get it. So I said to my buddy, when I said go, be ready and make it for the little bridge across the swamp if we can. I said go, and we made the bridge. The whole way, he wrote, the Germans were shelling the swamp with gas and shrapnel. 
a foreboding of death. While the 369th was renowned for its aggressiveness and bravery, soldiers naturally had moments of primal fear. Pippin wrote about a young fellow hellfighter who, in July 1918, had gathered with other volunteers to join a raid. He looked like every nerve was shaking. I never saw a man like this before. I asked him what was wrong. His eyes all but bugged out of his head. He said, I am not coming back. Pippet reminded the young man that he didn't have to volunteer, that he could take a sick exemption. He said, no, I am going through with it, but I am not coming back. Pippin called it the worst 15 minutes I ever put in watching this boy. After the squad jumped into the enemy trench and returned with two German prisoners, the boy wasn't with them, he wrote. A German had run him through. He foretold his end. I have seen men die in all forms and shapes, but never one who knew like he did. The Final Mission In late September 1918, as the regiment advanced to capture the town of Sechaux, Pippin and a buddy were stalking a German gunner positioned behind the rock when they left one shell hole to find another with a better vantage. I said to my comrade, You go one way and I'll go the other, he wrote, for one of us can get him. Instead, when they popped up, the German sniper, Let me have it, Pippin wrote, causing him to fall onto his back in a deep shell hole. His shoulder and his right arm shattered by bullets. I began to plug up my wounds when my buddy came to me and did what he could for me. I thought I could get up, but I could not. I shook hands with him, and I never seen him since. Pippin lay there, losing blood as the battle raged on. Now the shells were coming close to me. Pieces of shells would come in near me sometimes. Then the German sniper kept after me all day. Eventually, a French soldier scouting German snipes, snipers noticed Pippin laying on the shell hole and started to speak. But before he got the word out, a bullet pierced his skull. He sank on me. I seen him coming on, but I could not move. I was just that weak, so I had to take him. Despite being pinned and too weak to move, Pippin said he was glad for the dead man's water and bread. When the night came on, and the skies opened up, he attempted unsuccessfully to pull the blanket from the man's kit and to push him off. The rain came more and more until I were in water, yet I were growing weaker and weaker all the time, and I went to sleep. I can't say how long. Two soldiers eventually arrived, pulled the Frenchman off him, and carried Pippin to a holding area for the wounded. Painting the war, with his right arm largely paralyzed, Pippin shipped back to the U.S., physically and emotionally shattered. He ultimately settled in Westchester, Pennsylvania, married, and eked out a subsistence living. He was known to suffer from bouts of depression. He began painting in earnest about ten years after returning from the war, teaching himself to guide his right arm with his left. Inside his house, he worked under a naked light bulb, outside under a tree in his garden. His pictures with their broad, flat planes of color 
had a raw emotional intensity. He sometimes bought his pictures for local services, and it was in the window of a shoe repair shop that his art was discovered by famed local illustrator N.C. Wyeth. It wasn't long before the major museums and galleries were showcasing Pippin's work and collectors began clamoring for his paintings. While he painted many subjects from portraits to scenes of daily life, he kept returning to the subject of war. One of his best-known pictures, The End of the War Starting Home, circa 1930, shows a grim tableau of German soldiers surrendering, complete with barbed wire, exploding shells, and planes falling from the sky. Pippin intensified its visual impact by carving helmets, hand grenades, rifles, and tanks into the surrounding wooden frame. When I was a boy, I loved to make pictures, he later recalled, but it was the terror of World War I that brought out the art in me. So I came home with all of it in my mind, and I paint from it today. The United States awarded Pippin with a Purple Heart in 1945, a year before he died. The Black Explorer Who May Have Reached the North Pole First by James Edward Mills When Commander Robert Peary ordered his team to make camp on April 6, 1909, he was not entirely certain that he had reached his objective. On his final expedition to the North Pole, the challenges of Arctic exploration were exacerbated by the complexities of terrestrial navigation. Though history initially gave credit to Peary for being the first person to reach Earth's northernmost point, one invaluable member of Peary's party was long overlooked in the record books, a black explorer from Baltimore named Matthew Alexander Henson. Exhausted from weeks of travel across the stark expanse of the polar ice cap, Peary had struggled to recover after a shock of plunging into the frigid open water of a sudden fissure the day before. Undaunted, the team that included four Inuit hunters named Ukia, Uta, Egingwa, and Siglu pressed forward. Henson had also fallen in. Faithful old Uta grabbed me by the nape of the neck, the same as he would have grabbed a dog, Henson wrote in his memoir, A Negro Explorer at the North Pole. And with one hand, he pulled me out of the water, and with the other, hurried the team across. Henson and Peary's account of reaching the North Pole. Perhaps the confusion of enthusiasm for being so close to their goal the team traveled north at a frantic pace for several more miles. As Perry struggled in the rear, they finally stopped for the night. The commander, who was about 50 hours behind me, called out to me and said we were going to camp, Hanson wrote. With just a few hours of sleep to regain his strength on the morning of April 7th, Perry made careful measurements to determine their exact location. We were now at the end of the last long march of the, of the upward journey, he wrote in his book, the North Pole, its discovery in 1909 under the auspices of the Peary Arctic Club. I was actually too exhausted to realize at the moment that my life's purpose had been achieved. By his calculations, the team had reached the North Pole, Hansen confirmed Peary's account. The results of the first observation showed that we had figured out the distance very accurately for when the flag was, poised, was hoisted over the geographical center of the Earth 
It was located just behind our igloo, Sensen wrote. Fury's claim of reaching the North Pole eventually fell under scrutiny. In fact, by the 1980s, even one of Peary's financial backers, the National Geographic Society, determined Peary's team may have fallen short of their goal. Still, if Peary and his party did plant their flag at the North Pole as they believe, which member of the team arrived there first? Some records suggest it would, be, would have been Henson. When the compass started to go crazy, Henson recalled in a 1936 interview, I sat down to wait for Mr. Peary. He arrived about 45 minutes later, and we, repair, we prepared to wait for the dawn to check out our exact position. The next morning, when the positions had been verified, Peary said, Matt, we've reached the North Pole at last. Henson overlooked. During the modern era of exploration at the turn of the last century, adventurers seeking fame and glory tried to lay claim to the, le to the last remaining untouched corners of the globe. The traditions of colonial conquest continued through the rise of American dominance to give credit exclusively to the exploits of white men placed in charge of expeditions. Contributions of the indigenous population and people of color, like Henson, were often overlooked or disregarded out of hand. But Henson had long been an essential partner in Peary's expeditions. Born on August 8, 1866, to a family of freeborn sharecroppers in Nanjimoy, Maryland, Henson was orphaned at a very young age. At the age of 12, he went to sea as a cabin boy on a sailing ship and acquired technical skills and languages as he traveled the world. While working as a sales clerk in a furrier shop in Washington, D.C. when he was 18, Henson met Navy Corps of Civil Engineering Commander Robert Peary. Peary hired Henson as an assistant, and the two began a long partnership in exploration. Henson and Peary spent the next several years traveling through Nicaragua, the rainforests of Central America, and then the Arctic. Controversy over the North Pole claims not long after Peary and Henson's return from the North Pole's expedition, an arch-rival of Peary, a disgraced former colleague named Dr. Frederick A. Cook, took credit for reaching the Pole on August 21, 1908, a year earlier. His claim was debunked. Due to the harsh physical environment and the inaccuracy of navigational instruments at the time, it is difficult to know with any certainty whose claim was truly valid. Still, Anecdotal accounts of Inuit witnesses and original photographic evidence suggested that the 1909 expedition, Matthew Henson was the first to arrive at what they believed was the North Pole. The dispute over who arrived first would fracture Peary and Henson's bond. After an association together as explorers for more than 20 years, Henson and Peary became estranged. Though he duly acknowledged the contribution of each member of the team, including the Inuit hunters, Peary claimed sole title as the man who discovered the North Pole. His assertions denied Henson credit as a full partner in the enterprise. From the time we knew we were at the Pole, Commander Peary scarcely spoke to me, Henson later recalled. It nearly broke my heart that he would rise in the morning and slip away on the homeward trail without rapping on the ice for me, as was the established custom. 
The two men had mapped the coastal perimeter of Greenland. They had retrieved and transported the Cape York meteorite, the second largest of its kind from the Arctic to the American Museum of Natural History in New York, in New York City. As a team, the expeditions from 1898 to 1902 set a new farthest north record by reaching Greenland's northernmost point, Cape Morris Jessup, and they made two more expeditions to the Arctic in 1905 through 1906. Matthew, the kind one, throughout their expeditions, Peary took credit for their accomplishments while Henson built and maintained all the sledges. He trained the other Western members of their team. Henson was fluent in the Inuit language and established a rapport with the native people of the region. He is known in the community as Maripaluk, or Matthew, the kind one. Henson learned the methods the, the Inuit used to survive and travel safely through the Arctic. Henson was indispensable, team member Donald B. McMillan recalled in an article published in the April 1920 issue of National Geographic magazine, with years of experience equal to Perry himself. Whether or not the team actually reached the North Pole in 1909, all members of the expedition, including Henson, were critical to the endeavor. As Perry himself said while they were planning the journey, Henson must go all the way, he said. I can't make it there without him. Thank you for joining us. My name is Chris Mahalik. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.